0: Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. Today I'm talking to Felix Booking, Senior Lecturer in Modern Chinese Economic and Political History at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Booking is the author of No Great Wall, Trade, Tariffs and Nationalism in Republican China, 1927 to 1945, from Harvard University Asia Center Press, which takes an in-depth look at China's nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek. In particular, he examines how a collapse in international trade, tariff revenues, and fiscal policy led to the downfall of the nationalist government during the Second Sino Japanese War. So, Philip's booking, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, So, the title of your book is No Great Wall. Uh, What inspired this title? So, the title was inspired
1: by a conversation with a friend who is an early modernist working on Spanish history or something like that. So, somebody who brought um, a general interest to the topic, but not necessarily a lot of previous knowledge. And I had been thinking about the book mostly in terms of the subtitle Trade, Tariffs, and Nationalism in Republican China. And he um, said, Well, that's all very nice, but you need something punchier. For the title, so how about you call it the Great Wall of Tariffs? And I said, well, no, because it wasn't actually a Great Wall of Tariffs. It turns out that the nationalist government really wasn't that good at using uh, tariffs to keep out imports for reasons that we'll get into in a moment. And then I thought, well, actually, but I like the, kind of like the idea. So if it's not a Great Wall of Tariffs, what is it? It's no Great Wall. And that's how I ended up with no Great Wall, Trade Tariffs and Nationalism.
0: There are sort of three big aspects to your book, and when you present on the book, this is how you sort of divide it, is in protectionism, unintended effects, and then when trade turned into a real war. What led you to sort of divide the topic in those three sections? So the way I went about writing the
1: book um, and the way I went about researching it uh, really are linked I knew I had a year in the archives in Nanjing and in that year I just tried to read as much as possible and then I got back to uh, the other Cambridge, sat down, let the dust settle and tried to organise my material and ended up with a structure which is about how the Nationalist Party of Chiang Kai-shek gets to the point where it has control over the Chinese maritime customs, how it uses customs to enforce a tariff policy that serves the aims of its fiscal policy, how the customs use economic modernity and administrative modernity, how they counter the rise of smuggling, and then the effects um, of uh, the war, Um, and also the effects of uh, tariff policy on the trade in selected commodities. Um, So, I mean, that's the six chapters of the book. Um, But I think all these things you can put under the three headings, um, because the big question Uh, to be asked about nationalist fiscal policy really is, does it work? What are the objectives on which we judge whether it works? And what does it do in terms of delivering revenue and protecting the growth of China's domestic industries, which are the two aims which the nationalists stress in all the policy pronouncements um, about this? We then have the questions that are linked to the rise of smuggling, um about the unintended consequences of tariff policy. And that is also where consumer behavior comes in very importantly because you can raise a tariff on a selected good um, if you want to reduce the level at which it is imported. But if uh, you have a situation in which that good is available in smuggled form, then maybe consumers are going to switch to consuming the smuggled good instead. And that means that raising tariffs may have the effect of creating an illegal economy. And then we have um, the whole question of the wall. We have the fact that Japan is uh, the most important economic threat as well as political threat to China in the 1930s. So these two things are very clearly linked the economic war and aggression of um, the 1930s and the military and political war that begins um, in um, 1937. So the book is organized into six chapters, but um, a lot of these chapters, particularly the early ones, are there to set up context. And the three important things, I think, are protectionism and fiscal policy, the unintended uh, consequences of our fiscal policy, and then the war and what it does to the Chinese economy and to the nationalist state
0: So a lot of your book is really about this question of state capacity. So that is the state's ability to be able to raise revenue from tariffs and therefore sort of pay its soldiers or pay its civil servants in order to run the state apparatus. How did you approach starting this topic? Did you look at state capacity first and that led you on to looking at tariffs or was it the other way around?
1: It really was the other way around. I started with something that has always seemed to be a very circular uh, argument in the secondary literature The idea that the Nationalists lost um, the Chinese Civil War in 1949, and because they lost the Civil War, they had to have been incompetent and corrupt and really uninterested in improving the governance of China, even before the war, because surely if they had not been all of those things, incompetent and corrupt and disinterested, they would never have lost uh, that Civil War. So it is a completely circular argument, which to me always seemed unsatisfactory on an intellectual level. I got into the study of Chinese fiscal policy and specifically tariff policy through my PhD, which was uh, tied to um, the files of the Chinese Maritime Customs Service, which I kept at the Second Historical Archives of China in Nanjing. And the specification was basically write a PhD that involves those files. And it seemed to me that really the core question here was how well tariffs had been used for fiscal policy and that also that question would allow us to answer the question of whether the nationalists are a competent regime before the war up until nineteen thirty seven, or whether the rot and the decay in nationalist governance is something that goes back um, across the nineteen thirty seven divide. And my answer to that question in the book is: if you look at nationalist fiscal policy, if you look at nationalist tariff policy, under the heading of whether it delivers. Enough revenue for stable governance up until 1937. Then the answer is yes; um, it does actually work in those terms. The nationalists regain tariff autonomy, which is one of their great, uh, one of their first great diplomatic achievements um, in 1929. And uh, they use tariff autonomy in order to increase tariffs, um, which delivers more uh, government revenue. Whether that government revenue is always um, used in the most sensible way is another question, but another thing that we have to bear in mind here is the fact that at one point up to 40% of central government revenue um, is tied up in uh, loan service and also the nationalist state is dealing with a multitude of military threats. So the fact that military expenditure is the other big um, item in nationalist government expenditure is also quite logical. So using that test, is nationalist fiscal policy sustainable in terms of the revenue it delivers over time? The nationalists come out looking a lot more competent than the literature often gives them credit for up until 1937. And I say that not because I'm an apologist for the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek, but because it seems to me that if it is the case that the nationalists are a reasonably competent uh, government until 1937, when judged on the basis of her fiscal policy, specifically the tariff policy, then the roots of nationalist decline must lie in the war era to an extent that we haven't perhaps previously appreciated
0: as you mentioned, uh, you use a lot of the maritime customs service, and your book is really one of the first books to to use that source. Another would be Philip Tai, who's an associate and researcher at the Fairbank Center. His recent book on China's war on smuggling looks at the similar set of of archival materials. Using those materials, it's almost as if you could ask the question: How successful was the nationalist regime until its collapse? Rather than looking at it now as a failure. Yes, I
1: think you could do that. I mean, we are looking at a regime which no longer exists in its previous form and which no longer exists in the same place. So I think in that sense, there's a very obvious answer to the question of how successful it was, but... I think, as with any other historical topic, if we approach the subject um, through the lens of failure and say, here is a regime that failed, and that means we have to find um, reasons for its failure, I think there's always the danger there that you end up maybe sidelining achievements um, because you are looking uh, for reasons for decline. And so the achievements don't make sense, and that is why they get sidelined. But really, what I'm interested in is to understand the reasons for the decline in nationalist governance during the war. And a lot of those reasons, um, I think, are to be found in the decline of China's fiscal modernization project during the war.
0: I guess it's very sort of post hoc, ergo to hoc history in some ways.
1: Yes, I think many of us would agree that that is often not a very good way of doing history. That's such That's an you know. Oxbridge question. God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if, if we wanted to use German uh, rather than Latin, we could go back to Ranke and we could say that uh, since history is supposed to be a study of wie es eigentlich gewesen, that really is what we should be doing. We should look at the evidence and we should see where the evidence leads us. And uh, rather than starting with a conclusion and then um, cherry picking the evidence in order to end up at the conclusion with which we started.
0: Yes, if only all history was written that way. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes, indeed. But I mean, plenty of it is, um, and yeah, and I think maybe the way in which um, archival access has developed in the PRC has a lot to do with the fact that the field is maybe twisted and turned slightly more than it would in the history of other countries where archival access is governed by time limits, but not by political restrictions and what you can and what you cannot see. So. The customs files, we always knew where they were, but it really took until um, the 80s and 90s um, for Chinese scholars to be able to use them systematically. Individual scholars had been able to use them before that point, but um, this process of opening up the customs files to Chinese and also to international researchers, that is something that allowed a lot of economic historians to test hypotheses uh, which they previously held but hadn't been able to test um, because of um, a lack of archival access.
0: So your book addresses what has been commonly referred to as the Nanjing Mm Decade, So this is the sort of 10-year-ish period from the late 20s to the late 30s, uh, where Nanjing is the capital of the Republic of China Mm -hmm. under Chiang Kai-shek. To what extent is Nanjing Decade a useful periodization? I would start by saying that my
1: book includes the Nanjing decade, but it also includes the war years. Um, and the reason why I take the story up to 45 to early 46 in terms of the records that I cite is really the fact that the idea of using China's trade to finance China's governance comes to a crashing end in 1945 because it turns out that it is extremely difficult to revive uh, China's international trade in that period. Really, the only imports that are coming into China in those years are UNRWA uh, supplies. And while the Chinese government contemplates taxing those, um, it is very quickly made clear that that isn't going to be happening. So there is virtually no international trade. And that is why Chinese maritime customs after 1945 are engaged in a clean-up and winding up operation. And then, of course, uh, many customs employees accompany the nationalists uh, to Taiwan. But that, just to explain why I use this very conventional periodization of 27 to 45, to your question, How successful is, uh, well, how useful is the concept of the Nanjing Decade? I think it is useful if we're being very precise and very literal here. So the Nanjing Decade makes sense um, when you're talking about the parts of China that are controlled by the nationalists. If you're talking about other parts of China, then obviously that periodization probably makes less sense because um, these other parts of China, if they're not the internationally recognized um, government of China, define themselves to some extent in opposition to whoever is the internationally recognized government of China, whether that's the government in Nanjing or prior to that in Beijing. But the one common misconception about the Nanjing decade is that this is a decade when the nationalists are not just internationally recognized and not just maybe the most prominent, but also the only government of the Republic of China. And that, of course, as we know, is very misleading. We have competing power holders um, throughout China who range in complexity from people who would very accurately be described as warlords to competing regimes to the nationalists which have their own ideology, which have their own political systems, where really we might say that in many ways they are not so very different um, from the nationalists. And yet because the nationalists are internationally recognized, they are the ones we think of as the government of China during that period. And the fact that for many people in other parts of China, the existence of the nationalist government in Nanjing was close to completely irrelevant is something that doesn't always come out in the scholarship.
0: And I guess one thing that I uh, enjoyed about your book was by looking at commodities and smuggling and questions of consumption, it almost sort of flips the history on its head, just looking at it from the bottom up rather than from the top down in many ways. Um, and you tell this great story about sugar coming in from the northeast through Japan-occupied Manchuria on trains to highlight that it's not just the low-level, disorganized movement of goods and services. It's actually quite well organized. I think if really we want to
1: understand fiscal policy, we have to have the top-down perspective. Um, it's very hard to do the history of a fiscal policy without that. But we also have to understand how this policy is understood, um, interpreted, experienced by uh, the consumer. And that is why the growth of the illegal economy after the increase in tariffs is so important. Because it turns out that despite the best efforts of um, the New Life Movement, which has clear ideas for what Chinese consumers ought to consume, many uh, consumers in China are not willing to switch to what they see as inferior domestic substitutes for international goods, and therefore they start consuming smuggled goods. And to put some numbers on that, in Tianjin in the mid-1930s, imported sugar on which tariffs are paid costs two and a half as much as um, smuggled imported um, sugar. So there is a very considerable economic incentive to consume the smuggled good. So we have here a tension between what the government wants and what the consumer wants. And it turns out that political affiliation, citizenship, sense of belonging, and the decisions that consumers make do not always line up exactly. There is, in some of the literature, a very moral tone about uh, people who consume smuggled goods, which I think is perhaps not very helpful to understanding how Chinese consumers actually make their decisions. I think it's much more helpful to try and get to to a framework where you think about the fact that it's possible to be both a patriotic Chinese person and also somebody who likes to consume goods, which are suddenly available in the market at a much more affordable price. So the moral judgment, I think, is a difficult one. You can see why the nationalist government chooses to make a certain kind of moral judgment. What I would say is that um, that may very well be true, but it's maybe not the way to try and understand why Chinese economic consumers decide to consume smuggled goods, particularly if you think about the fact that a lot of them, at a time of economic hardship in China, are operating under very severe budget constraints. So if it is easier to feed your family using smuggled goods, then does the moral judgment still come out the same way?
0: A question that someone like Michael Sony might ask is if there is less revenue from the citizenship to feed sort of the government coffers, then you have less money to pay your soldiers. And if you have a large threat from an external force, then things are not necessarily going to go well. Certainly, I think that's,
1: that's an important point to make. And that is actually a way in which the payment of taxes suddenly becomes um, very uh, political again. Um, there, I would say that if you look at the revenue figures for the 1930s, Despite the existence of uh, this illegal economy, Chinese tariff revenue is on a mid term increase after 1929 and quite a significant one because of uh, China's regaining tariff autonomy. So, even though there is an illegal economy, um, the nationalist government not only does not go bankrupt before 1937, it also manages to increase its government revenue. So, we see fiscal stability up until that point in 1937, and um, it really is the war that changes. That
0: balance. And I guess specifically that Japan occupies all of the tariff collecting custom houses that the nationalist government has been relying on for its revenue collection.
1: Oh, absolutely. If you think about the geographical dimension of the war, and if you think about the geographical di- dimension of uh, collecting tariffs, most of the custom houses are either immediately on the coast or they are on China's inland waterways to which access is from the coast. So within the first um, year of the war, the nationalists lose control of territories producing 90% of customs revenue. They lose control of this very important revenue precisely at the point that they need more money to pay for uh, the war. And again, to put some numbers on that, uh, on uh, the eve of war, customs receipts uh, account for um, over 40% of central government uh, revenue for the nationalists. So it's the single most important item of revenue collection, and that goes... Um, within the first year of the war. And so it, it really is quite remarkable that um, the nationalists keep paying interest on uh, foreign loans and indemnities up until early '39, even at a point when all that tax revenue has already gone and when really they need this money to fund the war.
0: So your second book is tentatively titled Economics on the Edge, and it's examining the impact of economists in China from 1949 to the present, especially looking at the impact of those who came to teach economics after 78 and their training before that time. What inspired this direction for your second project?
1: The second project, um, and thank you for letting me talk about that as well, was really inspired by a series of conversations I had with an extraordinary gentleman in China called Yang Jingnian, who was um, on the economics faculty at Nankai for a very long time. And I um, got to talk to him because I was at a conference in Nanjing and one of the uh, Nankai professors said, oh, you really should talk to my PhD advisor because he worked in the Nationalist Ministry of Finance during the Second World War. And I, at first, thought I'd misheard. So we went over this again, and I figured out that I had, in fact, understood her. And I had two extraordinary conversations um, with uh, Yang Jingyen. Uh, The first time, he was 98. The second time, he was 101. We emailed for a bit after that. Um, He has now passed on, sadly, but at a very great age. And Young is so extraordinary because he joined the Northern Expedition in 1925. And I remember sitting on his sofa in Tianjin in 2009 when he told me about this and that was just a mind-blowing moment to be able to talk to somebody about what they did in 1925 in the year 2009. Uh, he was a master's student and a researcher at Nankai before the war, worked in the Ministry of Finance uh, during the war, um, was one of the last Boxer Demity Scholars at Oxford after the war, and then went to Nankai to teach economics. And um, first he did very well because he was the person who had a foreign doctorate, um, and then he was purged because it was a foreign doctorate and the foreign doctorate um, from Britain at that that. And he was not allowed to publish under his own name. He did lots of translations. Um, in 1978, he was rehabilitated at the age of 70. He stopped teaching formally at 87. He retired. Uh, he stopped supervising graduate students at the age of 93. He brought out the most recent translation of The Wealth of Nations into Chinese when he was 90. And we both know that that is not a short book. And then um, just really to top it off, at the age of 95, he decided that he was unhappy with uh, parts of the translation. So he um, redid it um, when he was 95 and 96. So an extraordinary, extraordinary man, really, and an example of this tradition of Chinese intellectuals who somehow managed to have a career against all the odds. I mean, he, he didn't like the nationalists very much, which is why he went to Nankai in the 30s. He did work for them during the war, but reluctantly, the communists didn't like him very much for large parts of his career. And still, there is this extraordinarily productive mind. And I was telling uh, one of my friends the story of um, those meetings with Professor Young, and she just said, well, look, that should be your second book, because this uh, this man's life really is a history of uh, economics um, as a discipline in the PRC. And I thought about it, and then I thought, well... She's exactly right. It should be.
0: Yeah, what a great uh, story about one man's life embodying a, a field. Yeah. And if you then start digging down a little bit, you find that there are a lot of
1: stories like that. Um, you know, there's a crop of economists lived live to a very old age who um, have remarkably um, similar experiences in living through all the upheavals
0: of this period. But the moment uh, you're currently on leave from the University of Edinburgh and you're at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., so the people that you hang out with are somewhat sort of a different crowd in uh, the D.C. policy sphere. Trade wars and tariffs with China have very much become a contemporary topic. What kind of takeaways from your research are the policymakers in D.C. most interested? So thinking across the two uh, projects there, from the first um,
1: project, it really is this idea of the unintended consequences of um a tariff war. The lesson there I think is that you need to be very certain of what you want in a tariff war, you need to be very certain that you thought through all the possibly unintended consequences. Um, and you also need to have some kind of yardstick in place so that you know when you have got it, how do you know that you've won a trade war if you don't know what it is that you should be measuring? So that I think would be the main lesson coming out of the first book. Um I would add to that a second lesson. Um you know when we think about trade wars and real wars in um, China in the 1930s. All that uh, militaristic rhetoric around trade wars suddenly looks a bit different because we know what the difference is between a trade war and a real war. In one, people die. In the other one, uh, they don't. So what I always hope that people are going to take away from that first book is this idea that maybe in a trade dispute, we should rely on Forensic language rather than this kind of rhetoric about imports um, being a kind of invasion uh, and all of that because the Chinese example from the 1930s reminds us of just what that difference is and how it literally is a difference between life and death. And in terms of the second project, there really are three major points um, that I make. One is China has a tradition of economics that goes back before 1978, which is still very often used as a generational divide in Chinese economics, so that the experiences of the people who teach in the 1980s are very often not taken into account um, in discussions of Chinese economics in the reform period, whereas to me it stands to reason that if you are a professor of economics in the early 1980s, you were probably trained before the Cultural Revolution, and that therefore is the knowledge on which you draw when you're allowed to teach again. Then the comparative angle, the idea of trying to see whether things that happen in China also happen in other, uh, especially socialist countries, and it turns out a lot of the political debates on economics in the PRC in the 1950s are... Very similar to our debates that are being had in the GDR. In East Germany. Uh, In East Germany, yes, indeed. And then the third point, and that I think is the one with the most immediate policy relevance, uh, this question of whether Chinese economics might be headed to a different place from um, economics in the West, uh, particularly neoliberal economics, because... For a time in the 80s and 90s, the assumption was that now that Chinese economists had the chance to study neoliberal economics, surely they would want to become more like American economists and they would move in a direction of supporting um, the ever greater liberalisation of the Chinese economy and an ever smaller role of uh, the state and the party. And it turns out that there are certain boundaries to the academic discourse in the PRC, which if you are an economist with any sense of self-preservation you do not cross. So that is the third idea, and and the one with the most policy relevance, that it's useful to think about the past of economics as a discipline in China, to think about where there are ways in which the field is developing at the moment that might be different from what we're seeing in the economics field elsewhere.
0: To finish up, we have a quick fire round, it's called the Fairbank Five, and the idea is it's going to give our listeners a little bit more of a, an insight into your own experiences in researching and learning about China. So our first question is, what is your favourite Chinese food? That's
1: easy, uh, jianbing uh, Chinese breakfast pancakes. It's, to me, it's the best way to start um, a day in the archives. I know of no other breakfast food which has so many different ingredients. So yes, a jianbing sets me up very nicely.
0: I like that everything is oriented around a day in the archives. It's a, an important choice for an historian. <laughs> well, you also need your treats
1: to, um, you know, to get you through the day in the <laughs> archives.
0: Um, Indeed. Uh, your favourite place in China?
1: Probably Nanjing. It's the place where I've spent the greatest amount of time. And I've now, as you know, I've moved into PRC history, but I think the history of the Republic of China, to which maybe I'll come back at some point. Um, studying that period is always going to be formative for me. I love the fact that there's still so many trees on the streets in Nanjing. I have a great fondness for this 1930s architecture, which combines Chinese elements with a new architectural style. So the idea of you know how you can have a Chinese high-rise building, a building that fulfills the needs of a modern government by being big enough to be built across multiple stories, but that also has elements that are Chinese, so that kind of particular point of modernity. Um, I have rode on Xiongmohu. Uh, I have uh, spent many happy days riding my bike around Zhou in the Yangtze River. I have hiked up to Xinchan, so it's got to be nudging
0: a Chinese saying that you think encapsulates something that you appreciate about the language?
1: You know, I spend most of my time reading economics documents. It's not a very beautiful kind of language. So I'll reply with an anecdote instead, if I may. Once again, it has to do with food. Um, I was working at the number two archives in Nanjing a few years ago, and I went to the same Muslim noodle place every night. And I think on the third or fourth day of that, one of the boss's friends said to the boss, uh, is he one of us? Um, The boss said, no, no, he just likes our food. But that to me was a moment where I felt very much seen as an individual rather than just some random foreigner. So it was a place where I felt very much at home in the language um, and in that particular place. To me, it's a moment of hospitality that I thought about um, very often.
0: A book that you have read recently on China that you would recommend...
1: So, I think John Wong's book on uh, Hao Kuan, the uh, comprador, is really important because for a long time the secondary literature treated compradors as essentially inferior to Western merchants, and as, you know, even uh, the work of Yen Ping Hao makes the case that, you know, the comprador is important by not being as much a second-tier merchant as it was previously thought, whereas what John does is to say, okay, here is a way in which we need to rethink the history of China's role in global capitalism in the 19th century by looking at these compradors who are at the heart of merchant networks. That is probably the biggest intervention in the field of Chinese economic history that I can think of. Wonderful book. Um, everyone should read it.
0: Uh, And our final question is a class that you have taught or taken on China that changed your thinking about the country.
1: Yeah, I think I would say the Qing documents class that I took as a doctoral student um, at Cambridge, uh, taught by my advisor, um, Hans van der Ven and still based on the old Harvard syllabus, which he himself had studied with Professor Kuhn as a graduate student. And it wasn't so much the fact that it changed my understanding of uh, the field in terms of telling me something that I thought was unexpected, but it fleshed out so much of the detail about how um, the late Qing state works. That really was, and it showed me how much you could get out of these documents. So that, I'd say, really was a transformative class.
0: Well, Felix Booking, thank you so much for being with us on the Harvard on China podcast. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your RSS feed.